I command you to be open-handed towards your brothers and towards the poor and needy in your land. Heavenly Father, speak to us, we pray, through your word and by your spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Over these Sunday evenings, we're thinking about all that it means to be a disciple of Christ, and so far we've looked at trusting in him and obeying God's word, telling the world, and last week serving the church. And tonight our focus is on caring for needs. These baptisms this evening have reminded us that by the grace of God we are saved through faith in Jesus our Lord and Saviour. But what is it that we are saved for? One answer to that in the Bible is that we are saved to do good. In his letter to Titus, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And that doing of what is good by disciples of Christ is something that gets noticed. Fortnight ago, Hurricane Sandy smashed into the eastern United States, the daughter of American friends of ours found herself home alone and without power for over three days until it was reinstated. But the impact of Sandy was dwarfed by that of Katrina in 2005 that inundated New Orleans, caused $80 billion of damage to property and killed over 1,800 people. Roy Hattersley wrote a column in The Guardian in its aftermath. It was titled Faith Does Breed Charity. And it had the subheading, We atheists have to accept that most believers are better human beings. He wrote, The Salvation Army has been given a special status as provider-in-chief of American disaster relief. But its work is, is being augmented by all sorts of other groups. Almost all of them have a religious origin and character. Notable by their absence are teams from rationalist societies, free thinkers clubs and atheist associations, the sort of people who not only scoff at religion's intellectual absurdity, but also regard it as a positive force for evil. Christian believers, he argues, are the men and women most willing to change the fetid bandages and replace the sodden sleeping bags. Good works, John Wesley insisted, are no guarantee of a place in heaven, but they are most likely to be performed by people who believe that heaven exists. The correlation is so clear that it is impossible to doubt that faith and charity go hand in hand. End of quote. And there's nothing new about this. Right from the early days of the Christian faith, the church community has become known for its compassionate service and its generosity towards those in need. For instance, in the second century, Christians would collect unwanted children left on rubbish dumps to die and bring them up themselves in their own families. 
Justin Martyr, in his apology addressed to the Roman Emperor, said this, But as for us, in other words, the Christians, as for us, we have been taught that to expose newly born children is the act of wicked men. And this we have been taught so that we should not do anyone an injury and so that we should not sin against God. From two centuries after that, there's a remarkable letter from the Roman Emperor Julian who tried to revive paganism, but he found that Christianity was on the rise. And he wrote to a pagan priest, It is disgraceful that while impious Galileans, that is to say Christians, while impious Galileans support both their own poor and ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. So said the emperor. The wellspring of that kind of compassion in action and the heart of what we need to hear this evening is there in 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. It's there on page 1227. We heard these verses earlier on. You might like to turn that up before we go any further. Let me just remind you of those verses. 1 John 3 from verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. And what John says there simply reflects a consistent theme in the Bible. For instance, we also heard from Deuteronomy 15, I command you to be open-handed towards your brothers and towards the poor and needy in your land. So my three headings are three simple questions. First of all, who are the poor and the needy? Secondly, why should we care for needs? And then thirdly, how should we care for needs? So first of all, who are the poor and needy? Now there seems to be a whole kind of mini industry around the issue of the definition of poverty, but let me try and keep it simple. Surely the bottom line is this, the poor and needy are those who lack what they need to survive and thrive. To survive and thrive we have needs in a range of different areas of our lives. We know almost nothing about the boyhood of Jesus but I find very striking the description of his development that Luke gives to sum up those years. This is Luke chapter 2 verses, uh, verse 52. Luke 2 52 says this, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and men. That is, we could say, he grew and developed intellectually, wisdom, physically, stature, spiritually, in favour with God, and socially, in favour with men. And to that extent, Jesus is a model for us and the children of our community and indeed of the world. We need all that is necessary for us to survive and thrive intellectually, physically, spiritually, and socially. And when those needs are not met, people experience spiritual needs or social and emotional needs or educational needs or physical and material needs. The most severe form of poverty and need is spiritual. 
And the great danger of spiritual poverty is that people don't necessarily realize that they are poor. That is the warning that the risen Jesus gave to the Laodiceans. He tells them, this is Revelation 3, 17 and 18. Jesus says, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. And of course, those who suffer materially can be spiritually rich. So Jesus says to the church at Smyrna, this is Revelation 2, 8 to 11, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. The statistics of material and social need globally are, as we well know, overwhelming. Last week at our World Mission Focus meeting, John Ingalls Jones of Anglican International Development spoke movingly about conditions in the new nation of South Sudan. One in three of the population suffer from chronic hunger. One in nine mothers die in pregnancy or childbirth. From where we sit, that is almost unimaginable material need. Such poverty has perhaps four main causes. First, there is oppression or injustice. Secondly, natural disaster or calamity. Thirdly, conflict and warfare. Fourthly, personal sin. And poverty, of course, is not just a global concern that is elsewhere. It's a national concern for us as well. Absolute poverty must surely take priority, and yet relative poverty is real as well. And this double-dip recession has brought hardship to many. Now that relates to material poverty, but perhaps the greater issue for us is social and educational poverty. Much that's important does not relate to how much money we have, either individually or as a society. Robert Kennedy once said, Gross national product measures neither the health of our children, the quality of their education, nor the joy of their play. It measures neither the beauty of our poetry nor the strength of our marriages. And he goes on, it measures everything in short, except that which makes life worth living. And yet there is a massive economic cost when these things go wrong, as they are in our society today. Before he came to office as the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, Ian Duncan Smith argued in a report that social breakdown cost the United Kingdom over £100 billion a year. Who are the poor and needy? They are those of us who, for whatever reason, do not have what they need to survive and thrive. Secondly, why should we care for needs? For a start, we should help the needy because we ourselves need help. You could call that enlightened self-interest. Do as you would be done by. That is the fundamental principle of how we should behave towards others that Jesus taught. Jesus said, Matthew 7, verse 12, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. How do we want to be treated when we find ourselves in need, as inevitably we do? 
We must put ourselves in the shoes of those in need and act accordingly. That might be difficult for us. It might not be. We all experience poverty of one sort or another at one time or another in our lives. Even if we have never had to worry where the money is going to come from for the next holiday, never mind for the next meal. Why should we help the poor? Because of the character of God and the example of Jesus. Jesus became poor to lift us out of poverty and make us rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. God cares about the needs of the poor and he acts to meet those needs. Psalm 113 verse 7, the Lord raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. And God's care for the poor is an example that we are to follow in our own lives. So as we heard from 1 John 3:16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And Paul says the same thing in a different way in Philippians 2, verses 5 and 6. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So we follow the example of Jesus. But we also should help the poor simply because it is God's command. Deuteronomy 15 again. Do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Give generously to him and do so without a grudging heart. And Paul carries that through in Galatians 6, 9 and 10 where he says, Let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. There's an obvious priority that we should give to the poor who are our brother and sister believers around the world. They are our family. But we are to do good to all people. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. The help we give should be tailored to the need. And in practice, no individual or church can help everyone. But in principle, there should be no one who we regard as beyond our sphere of responsibility. Why should we help the needy? Maybe most challenging of all is the fact that if we don't, we are showing that we're not true believers. In the context of telling us to treat the poor well, James says, this is James 2, 14 to 17, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. 
But there's encouragement in those verses as well as challenge because the implication is that when our faith in Christ is real, we will care for the poor because the Spirit of Jesus does live within us. And although imperfectly, that is our experience, is it not? Again and again I see that desire to help the needy grow in people as their faith grows. And again and again I see that desire being put into action. So finally, and thirdly, how should we care for needs? It needs to be said again that spiritual need undoubtedly has priority over other forms of need. Nothing can be more important than the eternal destiny of people and their need for eternal life through faith in Jesus. Tim Chester, previously the research and policy director for Tear Fund UK, writes this. We see all kinds of needs around us. They are immediate and evident. But the priority of the eternal future means that the greatest need of all of us is to be reconciled to God and so escape his wrath. And this is the greatest need of the poor. I remember hearing a Christian who'd worked among the famine victims of the Biafra conflict in Nigeria in the late 1960s he spoke of how their greatest concern as they faced death was to be told about life after death. People often say glibly, hungry stomachs don't have ears. But the hungry stomachs of the Biafrans were all ears for good news in the face of death. Now, of course, this is not a matter of either or. It is a matter of both and. We shouldn't choose between meeting spiritual needs and meeting other kinds of need. We are to keep evangelism central and we are to work at both. And that's going to mean caring for needs and also contending for truth and justice in the public square, about which more next week. When God's ways are embedded in the life of a nation, everybody benefits from that. And when they're discarded, everybody suffers. So Christians need to be politically involved. In the Bible we find principles to follow but not detailed policies prescribed for every situation that we face. So we have to give space for disagreement on policy, on the best way to help. But the Bible leaves no room for a doubt, for doubt over the fact that we should help. So that'll mean working at caring for needs as individuals and also as a church. The church is at the heart of God's strategy for caring for the world. And there's much that already happens through the life of this church that is encouraging. The Navajivana Healthcare Centre in Sri Lanka works to give affordable healthcare to the poor of Sri Lanka, and we help to support that work, have done for many years. And for 25 years, we've been in partnership with St. Philip's Community Centre, Buri, in rural Kenya, helping to build and staff and develop the centre there. Saul and Pilar Cruz lead the work of Armenia among the poor of Mexico City. And over the years, many people from JPC have been out and helped with that ministry. I've already mentioned the embryonic and creative work of AID in partnership with the Anglican Church in South Sudan, to which we make a significant contribution. We have close links 
with Andy and Rose Roberts, as David has already mentioned this evening, who are starting a new work called Revive in northeast Brazil amongst exploited and abused young girls. Those examples just scratch the surface of what happens through JPC. But we need more and more social entrepreneurs with a vision for what God can do through us and the drive to make things happen and the perseverance to see things through in the long term. All of this caring for needs brings with it all kinds of costs, of course, not least financial. And I thank God for the generosity that he inspires in this church and for the tens of thousands of pounds that are given every year to help the poor and the needy. And that grace and gift of giving is one in which we need to grow and grow and grow as we follow the example of Jesus. And what is more, we need to cultivate simple kindness. Tim Chester says, strikingly, perhaps the most powerful tool in Christian social involvement, a tool with the potential to make a huge impact on our communities, is the humble teapot. He tells how many needs can be met in some measure by simple human contact. He says it can simply involve sharing a cup of tea. And he quotes a Marxist who had no sympathy for Christianity and who thought that a great deal that the church did was a waste of time. But this Marxist said, if you took away all the kindnesses and neighborly acts that Christians do, visiting the sick, shopping for the housebound, and so on, then this community would fall apart. Let that be true of us. Let's bow our heads to pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you that you saw us in our desperate need and you laid down your life for us. Please help us by the power of your spirit and lead us and guide us more and more to be a church that cares for the needy. Amen.